Colossians part two, quick recap. Paul has been inspired to write a letter to this embryonic church in a small city called Colossae, in what is now Turkey. You know what, the church there, they're a great bunch. They're doing well, they're faithful. But they're facing a growing threat from false teachers and false teaching. Particularly challenging the, the deity and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul sets about laying out his defense of two things, really. First of all, the supremacy and the sufficiency and the sovereignty of Christ. And secondly, the, the purity, purity and the adequacy and the accuracy of the true gospel. Uh, as was convention, the letter starts in chapter 1 with, with a greeting and a prayer. And it closes in chapter 4 in a similar fashion. In terms of content in this book, the first half, which is chapters 1 and 2, is, concentrates more on the theology, the theory, if you like. And the second half, chapters 3 and 4, is the practical application of that theology. And uh, I'm sure you don't need a reminder, but there's some, just some fantastic material in the book of Colossians. Highlights include, for me at least, Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I think that's what we've been doing so far this morning. I love Colossians 3 verse 12, which says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Wasn't that good news for a start? We are God's people, chosen, holy and dearly loved. Then it says, clothe yourselves. I love that description, that depiction. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. Amen. Verse 15 of chapter 3 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Fantastic verses, fantastic materials and there's much more in there as we will see over the next few weeks. Now our passage for today is, is one of Paul's great prayers. And if you read through his epistles, every now and again, Paul pops a little prayer into the middle of his, his prose. The most well-known three really are the two in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3. And this one right here in Colossians chapter 1. And if you remember, he's just commended the people. He just encouraged them as we saw last week. And now he's moved to pray for them. So picking up Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes this, So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you'll be strengthened with all his glorious power 
day you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Amen. What a great prayer. You know, essentially as you read that, Paul asked the Lord for four things for the Colossians. The first thing, verse 9, we're going to call spiritual intelligence. The second one, verse 10, is practical obedience. How many of you know those two go together, as we'll see? The third thing he prays for in verse 11 is moral strength, patience, and endurance. And then fourthly, he prays that they might have thankful hearts in verses 12, 13, and 14, to which I would say, yes, please, Lord, to much more of that. We'll spend five minutes or so looking at each one of those, and then we'll pull it all together. So the first one, number one, is spiritual intelligence. Reading verse 9 again, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. And frankly, in any prayer, that, that would seem to me to be a sensible place to start. He prays three things. First of all, this complete knowledge of God's will. The word knowledge is epignosis, which is, which is where the word Gnostic comes from. The second thing he prays for is spiritual wisdom. And the third thing he prays for is understanding. Those three Greek words, Sophia for uh, wisdom and Synesis for understanding, those three Greek words would have been central concepts in, first of all, in Greek philosophy, but also in, in Gnostic teaching. Paul, of course, as we know, was, a, was an absolute expert at adjusting his themes and even his vocabulary to, to match the audience right in front of him. Of course, for the, for the Jewish reader, Old Testament scripture had, had a lot to say about the pursuit of wisdom. I think particularly of the book of Proverbs. I think for us, I don't know if, I, if you're about like me, but you know, I grew up being told all about IQ. Probably one of my teachers I didn't have enough. And then we started hearing about EQ, which was, which was emotional intelligence, in, in, intellectual quotient, emotional quotient. Now we hear people talk about SQ, which is a spiritual quotient. To which I'd say, how badly do we need, if we're going to navigate this world, our life, our relationship, how badly do we need spiritual intelligence? The NIV says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. In other words, Paul's prayer was that we might be filled. The Greek word there means filled to the brim. It means crammed. It means liberally supplied. It means complete. And the word, the word playroom was used to describe a ship 
fully equipped, ready for its voyage with a full cargo and a full crew. So Paul is, is asking God here to furnish us with all we will need for the journey. Now in the language of the New Testament, the expression filled with often implies controlled by. So when Paul talks about us being filled with anger, he's talking about us being controlled by anger. Or, or when he writes about us being filled with the Spirit, the implication is being controlled by the Spirit. So what Paul is praying here is that we might be controlled by, filled with, controlled by our knowledge of the will of God. In other words, that we might live a life ruled and dominated by the pursuit of an obedience to the Father's will, much as Jesus did. So as a follower of Jesus, it should be our life's pursuit to know and to follow God's will as accurate as we can. Amen. Which leads, I think, to a pivotal question, which is where is God's complete will to be found? I like to think the answer to that is, is reasonably obvious. Number one, the complete will of God is, is to be found in his word as presented in, in the Old and the New Testament. Number two, the will of God is to be found in the person and the works of Jesus. And number three, the will of God is made specific and applicable in the ministry and the leading of the Holy Spirit. A couple of further comments about the will of God. Number one, God's will is not to be found in popular opinion. It's not to be found in, in Hollywood culture or, or political correctness. Number two, God's will is not necessarily the majority view or a democratic consensus. Number three, God's will may well cause offense. Paul described the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.23 as a stumbling block to the Jews and an offense to the Greeks. And finally, number four, God's will is it's, as we know, a narrow way. It won't always be easy or convenient. It won't always be safe or indeed popular. Right, so the second part of spiritual intelligence is, is wisdom. Re reading the Amplified here, that you may be filled with the full, deep and clear knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom comprehensive insight into the ways and purposes of God and in understanding and discernment of spiritual things. There's a key distinction here. Paul is asking for spiritual wisdom as opposed to Gnostic wisdom or, or worldly wisdom. The Amplified gives us some clues. It's talking about, about a deep understanding of the true nature of things from God's point of view. 
The Amplifier describes it as comprehensive insight into the ways and the purposes of God. And Paul's influence, sorry, Paul's emphasis, no surprise, is that that wisdom, that spiritual wisdom, must be rooted in Christ. It must be focused on Christ, taught by Christ, who is, after all, the font of all true wisdom. And of course, in the ideal world, you will be filled with, you'll be controlled by Holy Spirit wisdom. The third one in our little list there is, is, is understand, the Amplified says, understanding and discerning spiritual important for us to, to recognize, and this would have been a message straight to, to the Gnostics, I think, that the true understanding and true discernment are spiritual, not merely intellectual. You need more than just theory or philosophy. You need the Holy Spirit to really understand and discern. And 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The things of God, the ways of God, the purpose of God are spiritually discerned. How do we discern? As always, it's the beautiful intertwining of word and spirit, that all things should be filtered and assessed and processed through two lenses. Number one, the lens of God's word, unshakable, eternal and true. And number two, through the filter of the witness of the Holy Spirit on the inside, wise, specific and bursting with the character Okay, quick summary before we move on. What, what we need is SQ. It's, it's spiritual intelligence. And SQ is gained through two things. It's gained, number one, through revelation, and number two, through relationship. And spiritual intelligence is something we must actively pursue. Read the first four chapters of the book of Proverbs. That means we need to be devoted and prayerful students of the Word of God. And it also means we must, we must maintain this, this ongoing dialogue with the Holy Spirit, who's the ultimate source of wisdom and understanding. And discernment. That was number one. Two, three, and four will be slightly quicker. Number two is practical obedience. New Living Translation says, then... I put that in capital letters, joins to the first, the previous verse. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Here's the message. That knowledge that wisdom, that understanding should, as an inevitable byproduct, lead to honoring and pleasing and obeying God. And that in turn will lead to growth and it will lead to 
fruitfulness. In other words, the more you know, the more you should obey. And to complete the cycle, the more that you, the more that you obey, the more you will come. You know, it's so important that that spiritual knowledge is related and applied and converted into real, practical living. That was something that the false teachers in Colossae notably failed to do. In other words, we're not talking about just about some ethereal and, and mystical revelation. Not talking about some enlightenment that no one else understands but makes me look deep and clever. We're not just talking about theory and head knowledge that doesn't affect and change our character and our conduct. What, what Paul is saying here is that the input should produce a godly output. There are some implicit warnings here to, to the Gnostic teachers, and I believe even to us. Three warnings. Number one, beware striving to become so spiritually smart, always looking for some great new revelation, that you end up way out there on a limb. It's not what wisdom, knowledge, discernment, and understanding are for. Warning number two, beware being full of great opinions, full of great theories that you've never put into practice, you've never observed in action or never placed into its wider context. And then number three, beware telling everyone how much you honor God if you're constantly dishonoring everybody Here's a challenge for us. The challenge is, is there a gap between what you know in theory and what you actually do in practical obedience? Now, I don't wish to be harsh, and I'll duck down behind the pulpit here, but I reckon the answer is yes for all of us. There's, there'll be a little bit of a gap between what we, we know, what, what God has told us, the revelation we've had, the the instruction that God has given us, and what we actually do when push comes to shove. So Paul's prayer here is about narrowing the gap between verse 9, the knowledge, and verse 10, the practical obedience. What Paul is praying here is, is that the, the filling of verse 9 should lead to verse 10. The King James says that you may walk worthy of the Lord. In other words, we might have lives that, that reflect the very heart and will of God. Lives that honor him. Lives that please him. Lives that imitate him. And he says, if you do that, you will produce every kind of good fruit. Number three is moral strength. Verse 11, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. Just think about Paul for a second. Paul, more than 
anyone knew the weariness that can come from, for stand, from standing up for Christ in a hostile world. We're talking about a man who was repeatedly persecuted and ridiculed. We're talking about a man who was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned and much more. We're talking about a man who, who told us that he dragged around with him this, this thorn in the flesh, which is widely thought to be this, this kind of vindictive and divisive character who heckled him whenever he opened his mouth. So in the light of that, as Paul prays, he shows us here that we can ask God for strength. We can ask God for enabling grace, for access to his glorious power made available through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Amplified says this, verse 11, we pray that you may be invigorated and strengthened. Even the word invigorated invigorates me. I don't know about you. We pray that you may be invigorated and strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory to exercise every kind of endurance and patience, perseverance and forbearance with joy. Doesn't that sound good to you? Two words. The words endurance and patience. First of all, the word endurance is hupomone in the Greek, and it means steadfastness, it means constancy, and it means perseverance. My school motto is omnia winkers perseverando. Perseverance conquers all. Hupomone is one who is, who is not swayed or swerved from their purpose or, or not swayed or, or swerved from their loyalty to their faith. It's a determination to, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, while he sets about working all things together for good. So Hupomone is is endurance when circumstances are difficult. Who knows that circumstances sometimes are difficult. The second word translated patience here is macrothumia. This is an endurance when, when people are difficult. This is, this is the quality of heart and mind that, that enables us to bear with people such that their unpleasantness will never drive you to bitterness. Their unteachability will never drive you to despair. Their folly will never drive you to irritation. And their unloveliness will never alter your love. After 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures, actually that's the word, hupomone, endures all things. But this passage goes further. It tells us where hopomone and macrothumia come from. How'd you get them? And they amplified again. We pray that you may be invigorated and strengthened. That's the word dunamu. With all power, which is dunamis, according to the might, the word might is kratos, meaning in manifested power, force, and strength, according to the might of his glory to exercise every kind of hupomone and macrothumia 
perseverance and forbearance with joy. I want you to note there, the source is the might of his glory. And that means these things are spiritual and not fleshly. They're, they're supernatural, not merely natural. The source is his power and not yours. And so Paul's prayer is that that power, the might of his glory, might invigorate and strengthen, literally empower you. The word dunamis is inherent power. It's a power that, that resides in a thing by virtue of its nature. We have residing in us power and strength. All the inherent resources of the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of us. That power will provide you with supernatural, above and beyond endurance and patience when you need it. You've heard, of course, of the, the peace that passes understanding. Well, this is a, a grace that passes your natural ability, that overrides your, your fleshly impatience or your reactive instincts and enables you to be more like Jesus. Which again, I would say, yes, please, let's pray for that. Number four, last one on my list. Number four is thankful heart. The end of verse 11, may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. So God's power in us is not only evidenced by, by patience and endurance, but it'll also be evidenced by joy and thankfulness. Let me ask you a question. Have you noticed how the more you fixate on a problem, the bigger it seems And have you ever wondered how other people are looking at the same set of circumstances and instead of a problem, they're seeing an opportunity? Here's a huge and repeated biblical principle. If you can stay thankful, you will remain joyful. If you can stay thankful, you'll remain joyful. Joyful. And of course, in verse 13 and 14 here, Paul gives us ample reason to be thankful. Verse, verse 12, this is, he has enabled you to share in the, in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. We have been rescued and we have been relocated. That's a reason to be thankful. We have been freed, and we have been forgiven. We have become co-heirs with Christ. That doesn't make you thankful. Nothing will. The commentator William Barclay said this, In the ancient world, when one empire won a victory over another, it was the custom to take the population of the defeated country and transfer it lock, stock, and barrel to the conqueror's land. 
Thus, the people of the northern kingdom in the Old Testament were taken away to Assyria, and the people of the southern kingdom were taken away to Babylon. So Paul says here that God has transferred the Christian to his own kingdom. The Greek word there is methystami, which means to transfer. It means to bring over. We use the word to translate. We have been transferred from darkness to light. We have been transferred from slavery to freedom. We have been transferred from condemnation to forgiveness. And we have been transferred from the grip of Satan to the power of God. You know, amen. And this kind of, this kind of thinking, we, we call it dualism, was, was really appealing to the Gnostic mind. Again, we, we see Paul's skill here in, in summarizing salvation, those two or three verses, in terms that the Gnostic mind would understand. They were really into duality. They loved the idea of, of flesh and spirit. They loved the idea of death and life. And particularly, they loved this idea of darkness and light. So the fact that we have been translated, methystamy, from one to the other would have been really meaningful and understandable for them. And it should, of course, in turn, make us thankful Here's the thought for me that spins off that. It could be that if you are finding joy in your life elusive, it could be because you've stopped being thankful. If you've started to become more aware of what you don't have than the things you do, joy will be elusive if you've been seduced into becoming excessively or even obsessively critical, you will find joy elusive. If the outcome of your circumstances or perhaps your response to them has made you resentful, then joy will be elusive. Of course, Nehemiah 8 verse 10 famously says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Without joy, you start to become drained. Life gets hard. Circumstances become overwhelming. Relationship with the Lord starts to become religious. Flip to that is joy puts that pep into your step. Joy fuels your, your energy and your enthusiasm. Nehemiah 8, verse 10, joy literally strengthens your heart. Here's the point again. To guard that, you must remain thankful. Intentionally thankful. Habitually thankful. And that applies in every sphere of your life. It applies in your work. It applies within your family. It applies in your church. It applies to your faith. And I'd say this, any area of your life in which you lose that sense of gratitude will become joyless. So Paul prays, may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. Okay, really quickly, two applications 
and then we'll close. Application number one. This, this passage here, Colossians 1, verses 9 to 14, gives us insight into Paul's prayer life. And it shows us how we should pray for others. Now, no, it's not wrong to pray for material things. But Paul asks here explicitly for spiritual blessings. He prays over for these people and he asks for a growth in spiritual intelligence. He prays for a, for a practical obedience leading to tangible fruit. He prays, number three, for moral fortitude, for patience and endurance when people and circumstances are difficult. And he prays for them thankful hearts that produce this fruit of joy. The moral of the story is we, we would do well to pray these things for others. And of course, you've probably heard many times people actually praying, literally opening their Bible and reading this prayer over people and over situations. So number one, it's an insight in, into, into how we could and should pray. And the second thing, application, I think, is, is it shows us qualities that we should be pursuing in our own life. So if, if that's the case, what are, you, what are you intentionally doing right now in pursuit of those four things? Number one, spiritual intelligence. That's why I broke it down in the detail I did. What are you doing to, to know his will? What are you doing to seek wisdom? What are you doing to, to gain that discernment, to, to understand what is really going on around you? Not in the natural so much as in the spiritual. Number two, what are you doing in pursuit of this practical obedience? Let me ask you a question. Is your obedience reluctant or radical? Guess which one it should be. Thirdly, what are you doing in pursuit of this, of this moral strength? The good news here is we can ask for enabling grace. A grace that, that, that empowers us to act and live and walk and speak and think like Jesus. Whatever the provocation. And fourthly, what are you doing to practice thankfulness? I'd encourage you to make thankfulness a routine part of your prayer life. And also in the light of today's message, just to have your eyes out for any areas in your life where that thankfulness has started to slip for whatever reason. And again, if there's any part of your life in which you're feeling lifeless and joyless, it may well be that it's because you've lost your sense of thankfulness. Okay, I'm going to ask the worship team to forward it today. May. The response today is, is really simple. It's which of those four do you need more of right now? The correct answer may be all four of them, but I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will have shined the light specifically on one thing that he's drawing you to today. And, and because this is a, an asking prayer, the response is, is what is the Lord prompting you in all of this?